Archipelago, the podcast project of the Finalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, what can a body do with Erin Manning? Hello everyone, today my guest is Erin Manning, uh, who's uh, the director of Sense Lab and a professor of Concordia in Montreal, also the, the co-editor of Inflection, uh, and uh, also is a, she has the particularity of being hard to define, uh, because she, uh, she She's a painter, she's a sculptor, she's a dancer, she's a fashion designer, she's a writer, a philosopher, uh, and, uh, and many, many more things. <laughs> uh, hello, Erin. Hey. Uh, so, I apologize for the noise around us, but uh, we, we chose to be in the, in the, social, uh, in the social world uh, to, to, do this, uh, to do this conversation, but we'll, we'll try to be, to be hearable. Um, so today we're gonna we're gonna speak about the, the notion of body because it's um, in all this work, uh, all those mediums that I just named, uh, there is one recurrency uh, which is rather obvious uh, when one sees your work. It's and it's around the, the notion of body, and um, and you you've been writing several books uh, that I, uh, for some of them I, I read uh, uh, relationships and always more than one, um, and. Um, And so we're gonna we're gonna explore little by little what's uh, uh, how, how you how your your work in its entireness is uh, creating a, uh, a philosophy of the body. Um, maybe uh, a question I usually ask my, my guests to start and to kind of warm up the voice is uh, is. To, to maybe quickly say what you're what you're doing right now, if, if you're doing some uh, research or if you're working on something, so that we yeah. can start this conversation. Sure. So um, I'm at the intersection of a couple of new projects. Uh, one of them, two of them are, are book projects, and I'm really at the beginnings, but quite excited about them. One of them is um, that I've decided, perhaps crazily, to take on a translation. So I'll be translating a beautiful book by Fernand Deligny, which is called uh, Les Détours de l'Agir ou le Moindre Geste. Fernand Deligny, uh, for those who don't know him, is, um, was someone who worked with Félix Guattari at La Borde in the 60s, was the editor of Recherche, the journal that came out of La Borde, and left uh, La Borde uh, to Monoblet and the Cévennes to work with autistics for 30 years and really developed a thinking that was extraordinary about language and gesture and movement with autistics. And it, it's work that has been untranslated into English and I think um, would be very exciting for the autistics, particularly in the neurodiversity movement. So. I'll be translating that book in the next year and a half or so, but I'll publish it as an edited uh, volume with some other thinkers at the intersection of Deligny and Guattari, so that the North American or or more Anglophone world can understand uh, the place that Deligny had. For, for people who know Deleuze and Guattari, the, the, the concept of the ligne d'air or the wander lines is from Deligny. And so then the other thing that I'll do at the same time is write a kind of companion volume um, on uh, the minor gesture, which is um, what I'm working on at the moment, which will be around Deligny. So Deligny's thinking has influenced me a lot. The book won't be about Deligny, but it'll move around his thinking, exploring the idea of uncommon modes of existence. So that's the, the written work, and in the, the artwork, 
Uh, I've been preparing for an exhibition, again two exhibitions in the in this spring. One of them is called Weather Patterns: The Smell of Red, which is about threshold experiences, particularly around synesthesia and smell. And the second one is called the the Slow Color Project, which is about making dyes with spices and looking at um, expanding my work in textile to uh, a kind of local dyeing practice uh, which brings together color and smell as well. Well, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> uh, and um, it's actually, I, if, I, if I react immediately on your translation, it, it's interesting to notice that Le moindre geste or le geste mineur uh, got the same translation in English, which is a minor gesture, I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah. The moindre and mineur. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because as a translator, and I'm really not a great translator, I'm, I'm francophone by mother tongue, and I believe that people who are bilingual like me suffer from being bilingual because we don't look for language to be equal on both sides. Mm -hmm. We learn both at once. So fortunately, living with Brian Misumi, I'm going to pull him into the translation project. The, I think the moindre geste is actually translated to the slightest gesture. But I'm thinking that my own concept of the minor gesture is conceptually very close to what Delini is doing. So if Delini were alive today, I would tell him, that maybe he should have called it le jasmina. But for now, I'm going to have to manage the difference between the slightest and the minor. I yeah. see. And we, we know this, the translating skill of Brian Masumi as being, <laughs> as being not to be proven anymore. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, okay, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to follow a path that I, I'm, I'm getting surprised myself that, uh, to, to, pick, to pick this order because that's not the way I was thinking of things. But since we are and uh, our listeners should, uh, should uh, learn about it, we, we are actually right now at the Dover Street Market uh, in New York for... Uh, created by Comme des Garçons and where uh, the Reversible Destiny Foundation from, uh, by uh, Arakawa and Madeleine Gins have, a, have a, a new piece. And so we are in this universe of, uh, of uh, fashion, uh, fashion and clothing, uh, fantastic for some of them uh, uh, around, around us. I'm actually going to start to uh, question you about the, the relationship of, uh, of fashion and, and, uh, and the body and, and, and maybe movement since movement is something that you're, you've been working on extensively uh, um, and since you you yourself design uh, 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 clothing and you're, you're wearing one of your pieces right now <laughs> uh, what what is for you this um, thank you what, what is for you this uh, relationship that we kind of take for granted but that's really that's really not that question when you look around you and, and the clothing we all wearing I mean me to start with is like uh, um, what is this relationship between body movement and fashion well I, I'm going to take a, a, a risk um, and uh, frame this around a book I wrote 20 years ago that I just republished called The Perfect Mango um, it's a book uh, that is incredibly autobiographical and so I've been very reticent about having it read but a friend of mine recently pushed me to let it out into the world and since it is out there in the world I'll contextualize it in relation to this question so I wrote The Perfect Mango when I was 25 years old and um, and I think 20 years later almost I'll be 45 in a week, um, I, I recognize that it was the launching pad for everything that I've done since. It's a book that is imperfect in a, in a lot of ways. It's fiction, or it's, it's somewhere between fiction and memoir and, um, and poetry. Uh, it's a book that came out of a long period of um, profoundly self-destructive behavior. And uh, that included anorexia, very, very serious anorexia, and sexual abuse, and so on. So I mention this because I, even though I've kept that part of my life completely outside of my academic questions, for anybody who reads The Perfect Mango, it will be completely clear why the body is so central to everything that I've done. And I don't mean that 
the personal is what is at stake here. It's not. What's at stake for me here is, as anybody who's read The Perfect Mango will know, a really strong relationship to Zarathustra. And so The Perfect Mango is written alongside Zarathustra's journey in, uh, in Nietzsche's book. And it's a journey into the world, as anybody knows, Zarathustra, toward convalescence, where convalescence, in my reading of it, is a, a, a joyful act. And I mean that in the Spinoza sense. So joyful in the sense of inventing life. What is life? Well, then, once more, Nietzsche says. And every single one of my books has that citation. Okay. And so I mention this today it also because we meet in, in the event of uh, Madeline's death, which has been incredibly sad for, for me, for us, in Comme des Garçons, where there's a new piece of architecture that, has been, that was created around Madeline's and Arakawa's philosophy. And all of that, to my mind, is now more clearly articulated in relation to my own practice around designing for a body that is not yet. So when I was 25, or before I was 25, around the ages of 20 to 25, I had a boutique in Berlin. And I was working as a fashion designer. I'm untrained. Unschooled, as it happens, I, I um, have a very unusual trajectory where... Um, I really have no training for anything that I've done, with the possible exception of philosophy. Um, and in Berlin, what I did was I had a, a, a boutique with four other designers, and each of us designed for an aspect of, of um, dressing. So one of us might design the basics, one of us might design the, the jewels, one of us might design the coats, etc. And, and we would share and, 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 and shift in those designing practices. But what happened in that period, other than totally exhausting us because it's an impossibly difficult thing to do, to, 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 it's hard. It's hard because you work all the time and you, you barely can survive unless you have other people making your garments, in which case you often are making um, decisions that are very problematic in terms of world economies, for example, making your clothing in, in Bangladesh or etc., which, yeah. which I'm very much against. Um, what happened in that period is that I realized that for most people, the act of dressing was one of anxiety. And having been profoundly anorexic, um, I also knew the anxiety of a mirror. Um, my own movement toward health has included getting rid of all mirrors. So getting rid of that, that, that um, sense of reflection of a two-dimensional, on a two-dimensional scale. And so coming out of that, and really this is only clear in retrospect, none of this was clear to me at the time, what I decided to do was to, to design a collection um, which I started about 10 years ago that I called Folds to Infinity, which would be a collection that didn't decide in advance what a body could do, right? So, so the collection um, in its full form is made of, of 2,000 different pieces of fabric, all of them cut differently, all of them holding the potential within themselves of dressing a body. And the potential, by what I, what I mean by that is that they I designed a sort of a matrix of a, of a pattern, which included a curve. And the curve is what allows for the topology of the body to connect in. Um, most easily. So if you design a square, it's not impossible to make a garment, but it's harder. It's harder to fit it. So most people will respond to the square by making a cake, for example. Um, so anyway, I designed 2,000 pieces, I, I cut them, I finished them on the edges, and I connected, I made connectors. So I, I sewed in about 30,000 magnets, 20,000 buttons, and about 35 to 40,000 buttonholes. And the collection was set up in different instances as a proposition to design your own clothing, where there were uh, sometimes a few mirrors, but almost no ways of reflecting outwards into the two-dimensional. And I really encouraged people um, to work from another standpoint. Um, and that other standpoint would be that of movement. And partly I did that because I know 
that to be in movement or to become in movement is to activate a body in its ability to re-explore itself through dressing as in a way that then makes brings out the most exuberant aspects of the body and really that's where the beauty of the body is not in its shape it may be interesting you you, you talked about topology the topology of the body and it, i i actually uh, coincidentally spent my entire morning writing about it for the text i needed to write and um and you know in relation to simon so we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna find another crossroad here but um my my hypothesis was that the, the body was a single surface that is folded, um, uh, that is folded on itself uh, on a quasi-infinity of times, and um, so thinking of it that way, of a topology where obviously uh, it's impossible and it's actually not interesting to wonder what's inside, what's outside, what's an interior media, what's an exterior media, because topology is exactly what prevents such a definitive categorization, and and. Um, so thinking thinking of the body as a surface that you fold like that probably does something to the act of, of designing fashion that uh, is precisely about surfaces as well and fold uh, that that allows the body to the, the clothes to to be very totally part of the body I suppose and um, and that's interesting because that's another question that. Uh, uh, you, you triggered in me a few months ago, maybe a year ago, which is what is the limit of the body, uh, which we don't really know. I mean, it's funny, huh? we, we always around those questions that seems very obvious and that you, you were talking, you were saying, what can a body do, which is like the ultimate Spinozist question. Is like, and, uh, and all those questions that seem so simple, but that really are only able we are only able to, to touch upon just a tiny bit uh, and I remember so if I if I make this bridge I remember that you um, a year ago when we saw each other uh, and when we were talking about the, the limits of the body you were telling me about this um, uh, this work you're doing with uh, autistic children who uh, uh, and for disclosure I know absolutely nothing about autism so uh, part, pardon uh, uh, forgive whichever ignorant thing I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say but if I remember correctly I think you told me that uh, autistic children tend to um, um, how to say to, to shake uh, a lot their body and 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 that m many people don't really understand what it, what it means. And your your hypothesis that is based very much on uh, on your own experience is that maybe those children are experiencing what is the limit of their body, which I, uh, I find fascinating for what it means for uh, very much all bodies. And maybe also, like I remember talking about that in the fact that uh, in wondering what is a clumsy body for example a clumsy, clumsy body like mine I'm very good I'm very paradigmatic for that matter uh, uh, is probably a body that doesn't know where it ends isn't it yes yeah. yes well a lot of a lot of different yeah, I'm areas sorry, that's yeah no that's right. great well, let me see if I can begin on the question of uh, the surface first yes. and then I'll come to the question of where do the where does a body begin and end? Which is a really interesting question. Which is pretty much the same question when you come to think about it. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the question of of availability. So we, we, we live in this culture from a, from a fashion perspective, from a textile perspective that has at least since the Second World War and the prêt à porter, um, the shift to prêt à porter being defined by measurements. So in the shift from haute couture to prêt à porter, and you can see, I think, the, the haute couture moment as coinciding with home sewing. So of course, for the rich people, you had haute couture, but for the poor people, you simply had the mother who would make the clothing. But in both of those cases, the measurements were specific to the, to the singular individual. With prêt à porter, you get a so-called democratization of, of uh, fashion and mass production. And mass production, and but the problem with prêt à porter, which was initially uh, 
which was initially conceptualized around the idea that you could go to one shop for all of your dressing needs, so that the one shop could could provide you with the whole outfit. Of course, the problem of Kadapoté was that it had to simplify fashion or to limit fashion to measurements. So it defined the measurements strangely in different ways for men and women, right? So for it creates a normative body. Obviously. Totally created a normative body. So for men, strangely, I, I really would like to understand this better. The, the the measurements were taken around the neck, around the sleeve length. So this is the, these are the measurements of a shirt. If you buy a shirt in the traditional sense, you get the neck measurement and the sleeve length. You get the, the, the hip-slash-waist measurement. I say hip-slash-waist because most men don't define a waist in the same way that a waist is defined for women. So you get, and you get the leg length. Whereas in the women's clothing, you get a, you get a comparative measurement. So what I mean by that is, is that if you look for women's patterns, you, since the, you know, since patterns have been invented, you look for a relationship between measurements. So the breasts versus the waist versus the hips. So a size six, eight, ten, twelve are always the same ratio, right? So, so your 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 hips to your breasts to your to your waist are supposed to be the same difference across the size shifts. Now, of course, you just have to see two women to know that most people don't live in a ratio body, right? So they have larger hips, smaller breasts, and which means that since the prêt-à-porter tradition, you have almost all women feeling like they don't have the right kind of body. And, uh, of course, when you can sew yourself, what you do is you learn to accommodate. So you accommodate uh, the pattern to the size. But when you go into a store, you can no longer accommodate. And, and so what you do is you correspond to the cut of a season. You'll hear from people, well, this season the pants are too low-waisted, I don't fit into them. Or this season the tops are too, etc. What that means is that the body immediately stiffens, in my reading of it, around parameters, structure, right? And what we lose is the sense of the body's elasticity, which is everything about its capacity to fold that you were talking about. So when we think about, or at least the kind of body that I'm interested in thinking about, is a body that moves. All bodies move. There is no such thing as a body that doesn't move, right? So instead of thinking, how does your waist correspond to your breasts? Um, I'd like to think, what kind of movement is accessible to you, right? What, what, what kind of folds are available to you? Now, you may have different availabilities at 75 years of age than you have at 22 years of age, or if you're paralyzed, or if you're autistic, or if you... What, are you a body that jumps up and down a lot? You know, what kinds of fabrics are necessary for a body that jumps as opposed to a body that strides or a body that... And I feel like if we begin there, then we're in the singularity and we no longer are defining ourselves according to this idea of, of an immobile body, right? And, and if we design across those movements, which I've been trying to do now for the last 20 years, I think we also build a sense of difference. Um, and we get away from the idea, at least a bit, of if I could only reach this proportionality, which unfortunately has now seeped into the male world, you know, if you have this kind of chest or this kind of abs or this kind of, you know, whatever, whatever dimensionalities are now foregrounded within the male population, then you have the right body. Um, so for me, the, the, the question of the, of the fold that you were talking about, of the surface um, folding in on itself, um, allows allows for um, a magic. Like I'm, I'm imagining, for example, a body with severe scoliosis. So this is a body that 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 has a, a very interesting bend. Let's let's get away from the normative idea that the spine needs to be straight, and we have a, a, a curved body. Imagine everything that we could design for a curved body. And um, so, so that's the first thought. I'll just hold that there. The second thought on, on where does a body begin and end 
is also interesting in terms of, as you were saying, in terms of the autistic um, tendency to flap. So autistics flap. What that means is that they're moving their hands usually and their arms. And the way that Tito Mukhopadhyay, DJ Savarese, um, many, many of the autistics I've spoken to talk about it is that they are recalibrating an, an over-sensing body. Over-sensing body cannot differentiate easily between an environmental, atmospheric um, experience and an individual or individualizing experience. So I believe that the autistic body is more acutely in the world than a, a learned and an, an, an a learned body, let's say. So the body that is schooled. I believe children and autistics are not that separate. But we, we, we school the body by by sitting it, by putting it in a classroom, by by telling it to to know its limits. Right? So so an autistic body is perhaps much less well, it's definitely, as I've written, much less tactful in the sense that it escapes the bounds of what we consider acceptable for a body. But it teaches us perhaps a lot more about these um, topological tendencies that I've been talking about in relation to designing for a folding um. Well, since since we started to talk about movement, and uh, the, uh, I think we should uh, we should jump. That's probably the appropriate word. Jump into the um, uh, domain that you've been uh, you've been uh, looking a lot uh, into, which is uh, the domain of dance. You're 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 a dancer yourself, uh, although that's probably something. Uh, saying that you're a dancer is probably already looking at things in the wrong way because I'm pretty sure you will tell me that everyone, everybody is a dancer. And um, and um, in, the, in the, the questions that we were um, evoking a little bit earlier, which is what, what, a, what can a body do, it also makes me think, of, in relation to dance, it makes me think of what uh, Pina Bausch was asking, the way Pina Bausch was chore choreographing um, uh, choreographing her dancer, which, from what I heard, consisted in um, in asking one by one all of her dancer in a in a normal session um, questions such as how do you wake up? how do you what what is it, what is what is your body doing when you get up in the morning what is your body doing when you take a newspaper and start reading it and she would she would she would not immediately uh, she would not immediately use those gestures she would uh, create a sort of repertoire of, of gestures that she would then reuse within her choreography and we, we know the, the the expressive power of the of her choreographies but um, uh, it's, it's it's interesting as well how this, those gesture integrated the singularity that you were talking about singularity the singularity of each dancer so uh, I think that's, that's something we can probably look at and, um, and also you created a concept uh, based uh, um, on uh, uh, what I, I think I don't know if it was deliberate or not deliberate but something that I can find in, in, Ber in Berkson as well which is a concept of pre-acceleration um, and if I quote you, you, you define pre-acceleration as how movement can be felt before it actualizes. So I, I actually have a bunch of questions about that, but maybe maybe first you should I should give you the chance to maybe explain a bit more about this this concept and the, and the, not the what what is the dancing body. Yes, lots of questions. Yeah. Um, super. I told you I would have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. Well, pre-acceleration was, was a concept, I should say perhaps to begin that my thinking begins in movement. And, and I, in my teaching over the years, I've, I've become more and more interested in where we begin. I think we really, when we begin to understand where we begin, mm. um, we also become more sensitive to how best we can learn. And so, without being aware of it, I think I've spent a lifetime in the studio, moving, mm. and that's how I've become a philosopher. So, so for me, um, as you know, I, I, I wrote a book, my first book in the, in the trilogy, what I consider to be a trilogy of movement, was Politics of Touch. And Politics of Touch 
was a book where I was trying to understand the relationship between what I called sensing bodies and movement. And at first I thought that um, touch was something that was that could be delimited in the sense that touch was putting my hand on your body and that touch was perhaps the impetus for movement. But as I continued my work, I realized that, and now that I've read Whitehead, I know this to be philosophically the case as well, that touch was too late in movement. Too late, I don't mean that it has no impact. I just mean that that what I'm calling a relational movement, and a relational movement, I mean moving in the world, because it relational doesn't have to be between two people, it can be between simply between the molecular uh, existence or the molecular complexity and, a, and, a, and, and the other kind of molecular complexity, which is a body, the atmosphere and the body or whatever, there's always a relational movement in my understanding of it, happens before you have something as organized as a sensation. And by organized, I mean that sensation does operate to a certain degree through a, through a relay that has a cognitive component. At some level, I don't mean it's completely there in the cognitive, but it, 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 it crosses between the preconscious and the conscious in the sense that a felt sensation does, does shift the rela- relationship of a body in, in, in its environment. So I didn't know how to articulate that, and as I was writing Politics of Touch, it was an, it was a, a, an instinct that I had. But I, and, and I, as I was working in the studio, I began to realize that what happened in my movement, and this particularly happened in, in, um, in relation to tango, which is a completely improvised movement as I understand it, moving within a very strict um, constraint, which is the, that of the walk. I saw that in the studio, the movement happened before I knew that it was what it was. So, so working with my, my, the woman that I've been dancing with for the last 15 years, Mireille Pinchot, who's a, a tango uh, prof and a, and a very, very experienced dancer, I realized that it was a really, truly improvised movement, which I consider to be maybe 5% of a so-called improvised movement. So, so a lot within improvisation is habit, and a little bit within improvisation is truly improvisation came in a way that we would then reflect on it in its aftermath, where we would say, wow, what was that? What happened there? And that those movements happen completely outside of cognition in any sense. And they happened, so the way that I began to understand them is that they happened within what I call the the relation or the interval of, of a complexity of movement that was created at once in our relationship and with the relationship of the environment. So they were affected, of course, by the floor, by the, by the organization of the space, uh, for example, by interruptions in the space, uh, architectural or otherwise. But also, they, they converged around an impetus that was not yet fully formed. And so this impetus that is not yet fully formed is what I'm calling pre-acceleration. And pre-acceleration, then, is the virtual fullness of a movement in formation. And so the easiest way I have of explaining it is that the strongest force in terms of organizing movement that we live with every day is gravity. Gravity impacts every movement in in the sense that it leads the movement to the ground. And so even in the walk where you have a shift from one balance to another, you have a very, very quick interval between when gravity um, pulls you down and when gravity pulls you down again. In that interval, there's potential. Potential to, to move in, in an infinite number of directions, but in, in a brief infinity, right? And it's in that infinity that pre-acceleration affects what will happen next. So a dancer's body is tuned toward pre-acceleration in a different way than a, an everyday body, simply because a dancer's body is, is experienced within the metastabilities of, of different kinds of equilibriums. So it has more access to that than an everyday body, but an everyday body is always operating in pre-acceleration as well. Otherwise, we could never walk in New York on the sidewalk, right? 
well, that, that's precisely what I find fascinating about this concept is that, and again, if I if I put it back with uh, my, my own reading of Henri Bergson's uh, uh, matter matter and memory, um, is that just like Bergson explained that when your hand goes to state A to state B, uh, you cannot decompose a movement because that, that's kind of a retrospective uh, reading of it. Um, just, just like that, you also explain that when you start a dance, you create uh, uh, this pre-acceleration. But when you when you kind of take it from there and think about it, is that you there was no beginning, there was no end. Like it's not it's, there's actually no state A to state B. There's, there's right. actually just movement yeah. in its in its in indivisibility. Uh, so. To me, being able to put the finger on on such a thing is is kind of is explaining the what, what the determinism of, of Spinoza, for example, is like that nothing of what we do could have been done differently because there was no uh, because we are in the impetuous in the inertia of a movement that uh, um, uh, in a in a movement that has no beginning nor end, like we just within this inertia and. Um, and so, obviously, the question that comes when we think of this uh, relatively hard to fathom uh, determinism uh, is the ultimate question that's always asked to, to Spinoza's, which is, well, okay, well, what is the concept of freedom within within this, uh, or or what you call actually, which uh, freedom is not a very interesting concept. What is an interesting concept is what you what you were talking about, which is a potential, because. Um, and uh, so, I, I don't know, what is this potential? That's I think that's an excellent question, and that, that leads me to Whitehead's thought, or we could do, also think it through Simon Long. But for me, um, in the Sense Lab, we've developed a, a concept that we call enabling constraint. And um, I would read Spinoza, Whitehead, Bergson, Deleuze Guattari, Whitehead, the whole line of process philosophy as being the philosophy of the enabling constraint. What I mean by that is, and this is often misunderstood in process philosophy, particularly by readers of Deleuze and Guattari, that um, the whole question of process and potential is activated by capture, by decision, by, by the cut. So in order for a movement to become a movement that is discernible, it has to be cut from its duration, right? And otherwise, there is no such thing as pure process. Process is activated by the cut. So the question is not, um, uh, or the interesting question to me is how can the cut be productive, right? So, so a lot of the time, um, coming back to the walk, a lot of the time the cut of the walk is predictable. We take one step in front of each other. Uh, you know, uh, we 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 um, we have a relatively rhythmic, habitual balancing that happens. Um, now, take your you take an example that you're walking from here to Fifth Avenue, New York City. Chances are that you won't be able to hold on to that rhythmic walk because you're going to have to create holes. This, I think of them as holes. So, so what I think of as a hole is is a passage that is relationally created on the sidewalk. So there are people before you, in front of you, behind you, and in order to get through them, you have to craft a movement through. The crafting of the movement through produces a hole in the sidewalk, I mean in the passage, that allows you to move through. But this hole is not produced by you alone. The hole is actually relationally produced by the people walking in your direction. We know that the hole is produced less well if people are on the phone or, you know, um, distracted in some way, right? So there are ways in which the, the constraint can get in our way. But more often than we give credit to, the constraint is enabling and produces alternate rhythms, a kind of dance, a kind of choreography, right? So in my work, no matter where I am, whether I'm in philosophy or in movement or in textile, I'm always thinking about 
where this productive constraint or this enabling constraint operates and what kind of potential it awakens. If it awakens, for me, the best kind of potential is that which produces a new way of thinking. And I mean that in the most minor sense. I don't mean that it has to change the world in a grand way. But in a minor sense, like, wow, I discovered a new metastability here. Or, or even better said, a new, a new metastability discovered me. Right? And so suddenly there's a sense of, wow, you know, there's a possibility that my foot here lands differently. And in the different kind of landing, there's a, there's a different relation between a hip and a shoulder. And what can that produce? Um, yeah. I see. And I think it, it, it kind of, the, the very last thing you just said, it kind of leads us to another, another concept that you, that you uh, uh, created, which is the concept of, of bodying. And rather than speaking too much of bodies as like uh, entities that are... Uh, that we can kind of understand your, you talk more of what the body is doing, which is uh, the, what the body can do, which, which is the process of bodying, which also makes me think of, uh, of Bergson in my, in my little reading of Bergson, I have to say. But I, I remember this, this class that, uh, I'm, and I'm sorry for using references, but I think, I think it's, I, I'm using them only because I think it's, it's actually pretty useful. But uh, I remember a class of Deleuze about, about cinema where he talks about Bergson describing a horse. And, uh, and uh, well, it's, it's, more, it's, more obvious when, um, it's more obvious when we talk about cinema, obviously, which is a, a two-dimensional image. But he talks about the horse. He talks about the horse matter, the, the matter that is the horse that's adopting a succession of forms. Uh, when the horse is uh, galloping, for example, and and also Deleuze described that for cinema, which again for an image makes more sense. I, I think we can probably th think about it in in, in in reality, in this three-dimensional reality, that we might very well just be an assemblage of matters that successively keeps uh, adopting. Uh, a succession of forms that is a, uh, and that is what we call movement but maybe we should stop thinking of it as like we are this thing that we know what it is that moves but rather we are continuously a, a, a material assemblage that takes a succession of forms I don't know what you yes, think about absolutely. it I mean, it raises two issues for me on the one hand it reminds me a lot of Boccioni um, I don't know if you know Boccioni's work. The, no, uh, he was a futurist, oh, uh, okay. and he, in his manifestos on rhythm and movement, actually brings up the the horse. I see. And um, just another reference for readers who might want yeah. to go in a in a in Does an art in an art historical uh, relation. I know in French there's a great collection of the the futurist manifestos. It might yes. be in English as well. So I'll I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> great. Um, so. So two things. One thing is that I think a lot about the body, this idea that the body is a, is a structured envelope, that it can be defined. Leopold exists sitting in front of me that is like, you know, defined, that has edges, has, has limits is extraordinarily abstract mm. because in order to see you as you I need to first pull you out of your chair um, if you were imagining me drawing you in order to describe you I have to give you a backside which I can't see I have to give you a limit I mean I have to somehow sculpt you out of the environment so very it's actually an incredibly complex proposition and so it strikes me that many of the things we take to be so-called intuitive are really complex abstractions that have become normative and that are that are uh, and I, that, that become normative relatively early I've recently been thinking about what that m moment is in a children's drawing practice where they move to stick figures um, and because that's that's a moment where they begin to differentiate the body from the environment and I wonder to what degree that's learned it'd be an interesting experiment to see if there are cultures in which a, a child doesn't re reduce the human to a stick figure. Yeah. But in any case, so, so thinking about that as an abstraction, as you were describing so well, a body, you, you have to do a lot of work to demolecularize the body and formalize it in that way. I've developed this concept that I call speciations. And, and what I mean by a speciation is really simple. 
I mean that right now, sitting in the chair, in the cafe, with the noise around us, in the, the, the store, we cannot separate this figure of Leopold from any of that. So the body would have to be defined here in relation to your foot on the floor, in relation to your bum on the chair, in relation to your elbow on the table, or your elbow on the body, in relation to the sound folding in. And a speciation would have to be perhaps invented around those tendencies. So a speciation right now of myself might be uh, a contact floor bum Floor bum chair, for example, might be a kind of speciation, or or voice, sound, hand movement might be a speciation, and I I, I think that vibration maybe uh, yeah. So it, maybe if we think in terms of these triads, these speciations, we are less tempted to to follow through with that abstraction. If we do that, then we don't have to do so much work differentiating the human from the non-human, the vertebrate from the invertebrate, the plant from the animal, the, the sound from the voice, etc. Well, and, and the woman of the man, exactly. and the, black, the dark bodies and the white body. Exactly. And, and so then the question is, you know, the, the, the next question that always comes, inevitably comes, is the question of agency, which I, which I come back to only because... I don't wow. want to. I would like to wow. ally this thinking with a political don't thinking that, that makes a difference. And so, people will say when you when I talk about speciations, yes, but this this can, in a sense, take the voice away from, say, the woman, or from, say, the black man, or say, the the transsexual. And I want to say it won't, because those kinds of abstractions will continue to be mapped onto a body, whether we like it or not. And as they're mapped onto a body, they will do the most uninteresting things in the sense that they will do what is expected of them. Right? So perhaps it's more interesting to let them grow out of the speciation than to impose them onto the abstract body. So that the agency, so-called, I don't like agency as a word, I, I much prefer the French agencement because it has a movement in it. For the agencement, the, the, the directionality, the, the, the movement of the body can redefine what those categories might mean. So that yes, I am becoming woman or, or becoming man or becoming transgender or becoming whatever it is that I'm becoming and I mean that in the most productive sense that it makes a difference how I'm becoming in this instant, in this configuration at this time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But I, I also think that there is... Well, the, 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 the becoming woman or the becoming transsexual or the becoming black is also uh, this kind of the political the political acts that correspond to the to the way the norm has been categorizing bodies at first so, and and it's true that it's hard to escape from it but uh, precisely what you call the speciation seems to be seems to be the right way to start uh, start addressing the singularity of each body rather than placing it in categories um, and uh, and I think in the, in the text I have in front of me right now you associate the word of speciation to another uh, another phrase that's, that maybe uh, uh, require a question which is the notion of more than human uh, uh, so is it uh, is it some kind of Nietzschean concept here as well or is it uh, <laughs> What, what is it? The more than human? Yeah, um, the more than human uh, definitely connects into an ecological thinking that doesn't want to make a separation that is clear-cut between um, an aspect of existence and another aspect of existence. So if, if we take speciation as a point of departure, the body is always more than human. Right now, you are more than human in the sense that the speciations are, are cannot be, as they emerge, cannot be distinguishing human from non-human, chair from, from, from bacteria, from um, human brain or, or whatever. But, but to make it maybe more clear for those who are not maybe that interested in philosophy and, and where this may have impact philosophically, I want to give an example which I've used in always more than one, which is the example of the autistic. 
So, as many people know, unfortunately, autistics have been um, accused, really accused in the worst sense, of being unrelational. So, within the popular uh, literature around around uh, autism, which includes psychological literature um, and even uh, educational literature, autistics are said to have no capacity for uh, empathy. It's called mind blindness. So, so an autistic is not capable, so they say, to connect to what is in the mind of another human being. Now, I mean, it wouldn't take us much work to show that many, many, many non-autistics are fully incapable of connecting to what is in the mind of another human being, and, you know, we won't go there right now. That's, you know, that's, that's another question. But, yeah. but um, the reason that autistics, I think, are accused of not being able to do that is that for the autistic, it is very strange the way that we non-autistics or neurotypicals so-called privilege the human form over all other forms and so when an autistic uh, engages with an environment there is not immediately a sense of differentiating one form of tendency or one, a form of tendency is the wrong way to say it when when um aspect of the environment over another aspect of the environment. And the way that they talk about this, many of them, but I'll cite Tito Mukhopade, is in relation to the first encounter with the diagnosis of autism. So Tito has a beautiful story about this where he's in the doctor's office and the doctor um, is talking to his mother and the mother um, and the doctor have set out these toys for Tito to play with. Tito is not responding to the doctor, he's not looking at the doctor, he's, um, he's not interacting with the toys, and the doctor is telling the mother that Tito has autism, that will, will not be able to relate to the world, will not be able to have a productive life, um, will not care in a way that is meaningful for his mother, etc., 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 the usual diagnosis. But Tito tells the story differently. He says he goes into the office, the sun is reflecting on the mirror in a very particular way which draws the ray of light onto the curtains and the, the vibration of the, the light from the table to the mirror is super interesting to him and, it's, and, and he's, he's, he finds this to be much more interesting than anything that the doctor has on the table. He hears the doctor say that he has autism. He thinks that what the doctor means is that um, he allies, or in his mind, in his four-year-old mind, he allies autism with the non-speaking because Tito can't speak, um, as many autistics can't, which is a, a motor problem. And so he decides that he's in very good company because the curtains must be autistic and the light must be autistic and the mirrors must be autistic because all of them are non-speaking. And in his work, uh, you know, Tito's published many books, he goes on to explain that, or to suggest that it might be a deficiency on the part of the human that they are actually incapable of seeing the complexity of what's around them. So in a sense, the autistic has a direct relation to the more than human as their experience of being human. And so what I'm trying to do here is to say that that it's, it's again an abstraction to make that, in, in, the, in the most simple sense of the word, not an interesting sense of the word, um, to suggest that there could be a, a clear differentiation between the human and the non-human. Well, and I think we're, we're reaching the end of this conversation, but uh, maybe to, to just bounce back uh, with what you just said with a, another quote of yours that I'm going to read to finish uh, this conversation. You, in, a text, in the text I have in front of me, you say, the body is not disabled, the culture is disabled in its incapacity to create accommodations that allow for difference to exist, which I, I think is, puts in one sentence what we, what we all try to say with a, a, lot, of, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of other words, but I think it's perfect to, to conclude this conversation. Thank you so much, Erin, it was, it was fascinating. Thank you very much. <laughs>